Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of MA Architects Make It Innovative, featuring deep dive discussions on the world of innovation as it relates to the built environment. Throughout the series, we'll be interviewing influential innovators that are shifting the way things are done, introducing new ideas and energy to our evolving city in a way that elevates human experiences and enriches lives. These leaders are being proactive and progressive in navigating success set up by innovative design, and we're here to share their stories with you. I'm Mark Bryan. I'm a certified futurist and leader of the research and innovation team for MA Architects. My passion is finding the underlying signals and drivers of change that influence how we promote innovation in the built environments of the future. And I'm Sam Dickerson, Senior Manager of Strategic Communication for MA Architects. My passion lies in behavioral psychology. I love to understand the motivation behind why people do what they do and how to get them to do what you want. And I plan to share all of my studies on the topic with you throughout the series. On this episode, we are going to focus on trauma and resiliency with tools for our listeners on how to be more resilient in their daily lives. From stigma to strength, we're here to have important conversations about mental health. This year has tested us all. And today, through our interview with Dr. Ken Yeager, lead neuroscience researcher at The Ohio State University, we will share with you his studies on the topic and the secrets he's learned through decades of research on how to become a more resilient person. We're here with the expert to give you the tools you need to be more resilient, to get through everything we've been through and prepare for what's next. This conversation will explore how you can use technology, space, and other methods to build resiliency into your life. Dr. Yeager, or Ken, is also the clinical director of the Ohio State University's Stress, Trauma, and Resiliency, or STAR program. Quite easily, one of the most impressive, incredible, and interesting men I've ever met. I could not be more honored to welcome Ken onto the show. Thank you. Hello, Ken. Welcome to Make It Innovative. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. We're so happy to have you. Yes, we're very happy. So to kick things off, Ken, could you just give us the one-minute elevator pitch of of who you are and what it is that you do? Right. My name is Ken Thieger. I am the director of the Stress, Trauma, and Resilience Program. I have been working in psychiatry and addictions for the last 30 years. My research um, has centered primarily on crisis intervention, addressing traumatic situations, helping individuals to build coping skills, and helping institutions to understand the evidence base that is around mental health challenges and mental health experiences. You are what the world needs, Ken. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what. So we really want to get to know you, and we've been doing this with our guests. We Mm -hmm. have three questions just to know you a little bit more on a personal level before we dive into all the professional work that you've done. Okay. Sound good? That's great. Let's do it. What are you most excited about these days? I am most excited about the research that is coming out that is beginning to map the root causes of mental illness that is leading us to understand what the physiological interaction is within the body that leads individuals to have such diverse life experiences. At, At this time, it's amazing to me how quickly the research is growing but yet also at the same time, how far we have to go. So cool. Ken, what is the skill still unmastered? I think the skill still unmastered is talking about mental health openly and honestly. You know, I remember growing up and my parents would talk about cancer in hushed voices because in the 1960s, cancer was essentially a death sentence. 
And they spoke of mental health issues in the same hushed voices. And if my parents were still around today, I think they would be very open about cancer, but I think they would still talk in hushed voices about mental health. And I really think that's the thing that needs to change. So interesting. We always say at the firm, from stigma to strength, and it is so, so true. All right, last question. On your challenging day, what is the best way to decompress? Oh, gosh. You know, for me, it's getting outside. It's it's getting fresh air. It's just taking that five-minute walk, clearing my head, um, and understanding that, you know what? We're doing the best with where we are at this moment, and it's going to get better, and then going back in and doing it. I love it. Such a good attitude, such great energy. One of my great philosophies is we may not be where we want to be, but we're where we need to be. Exactly. So, uh, and speaking of decompressing, let's just dive right into today's topic. And I think a great way to do that might be to help us understand some definitions and statistics. Okay. Here at MA, uh, we recognize that chronic stress is just a common thing that we deal with on a daily basis now and can cause things from obesity to sleeplessness to high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, not only that, but the World Health Organization cites that depression is going to be the number one healthcare concern by 2030. Yes. And then a new study has shown 70% of people are experiencing stress as a result of the COVID crisis, with 36% citing the outbreak has had serious impact on their mental health. And in 2019, a suicide occurred every 40 seconds. Right. But there's hope, and people like you can have dedicated your life to helping. Yes, these statistics really drove MA architects to help find a way uh, to deal with stress for our staff. We started looking into the evidence-based design principles that are out there, behavioral psychology, mindfulness and resiliency. We actually took a couple of classes on that to try to make sure that we understood how we could help our employees. Uh, we worked with researchers, instructors, clinical psychologists, and we're actually fortunate enough to be able to be put in touch with you, which is how we have you here today. So, Ken, wrapping all this up into an actual question, um, how do you define resiliency and why is it important with regards to trauma to you? Right. So it's interesting as we think about the statistics and the the growing problem of mental health issues in the United States and worldwide, because this is the largest drainer on economic impact. It is the most costly illness to treat. And still, we're not quite where we need to be with understanding that. So what's important to understand about trauma is everybody takes in their experiences through their own psychological, psychiatric schema. And the schema works well until there's information that doesn't align with the person's schema. And that causes disequilibrium. And they become estranged with their friends. They become estranged with strangers because they expect people to react the same way as they do. But all of us react differently. And it's almost as if the first thing that goes is everything that's familiar. And it becomes a process of figuring out what's new, what's changed, what's different, and how do we get you back to where you want to be? Or how do we not maybe take you back but move you forward? And where you want to be. So interesting. So with all of your research and specialty in the areas of trauma and resiliency, what can help make a person more resilient? When they're in that place, they're like, I want to be back. I want to feel like my full self again. So movement and sleep are the two most important factors. You know, we have fight, flight, freeze. And, and those are natural responses that protect the human being. 
So how do we get back? Well, first, we have to start moving. Second, we have to understand that this is a process, that when you are traumatized, there's three to five seconds of chaos. There's three to five minutes of intrusive thoughts. There's three to five days of those thoughts being very intensive that impact your diet, your ability to sleep, your daily functioning. Um, you know, as time goes on, these begin to, to trickle off. So three to five weeks, you're back to somewhat of a normal level of functioning. Three to five months, you're pretty much back to normal, but there are other factors that come in. So as people go through these stages, it's important that this is not a button that we can push on or off, that this is something we have to get moving, we have to start thinking about it, and it's a process of incremental steps towards wellness which is really hard. Absolutely. I was once told you have to feel to heal. And right. it's a hard thing. And, you know, everyone says time, time, time. But how would you recommend people, especially going through maybe multiple traumatic experiences through COVID, through a lot of the, you know, social and economic crises that we're experiencing today, how would you recommend they find comfort in the time right now? So I think we're all social beings, and in times like this, we need to connect with others. We need to understand where we stand with our anxiety and get reality checks from those around us that we care about. I am most frightened when individuals begin to isolate. There are normal responses to trauma. There's hypervigilance. So being aware of your heightened state of awareness and intense thoughts of what's going on. There are attempts to avoid circumstances, people, places, things that remind you of the trauma. There are issues with trust. Who can you trust? What can you do? So we start building those trusting networks. And if you can't trust, you must control. So we have to back away from the control situation. But as people get into the lack of trust and the controlling, then intimacy becomes the issue. People begin to shut down they begin to not connect with others. And that's when mental illness is its most dangerous state, is when the person is isolated and alone. Interesting. So can you talk a little bit about what it is that you do with these people that are going through these different states and um, what your passion for work is around that? Oh, that is, that's the most important thing, is helping people to understand that this is no different than being a diabetic you have to take medicine, you have to eat right, you have to do the things that help you to do. But what becomes tricky about it is if the person's depressed, they will be able to say to you, yes, I sit down on my couch and I lose four to five hours in a day. Or my telephone is right next to me and I see it calling, but the thought is I don't have the energy to answer it, let alone to talk to a person. Mm -hmm. So helping people to understand that we go step by step by step. And, and this isn't a lifelong pursuit of therapy. This is a short term, these are my coping skills I need to begin to employ so that I can then take care of myself. So you never leave my office without homework. <laughs> you never come back for your next session without talking about your homework. And if you didn't do your homework, which because people try to avoid the situation, sure. we're going to do your homework in this session. And that's what keeps people moving. 
So, and I think I remember it was one of our first conversations. You actually talked about like an app that you had developed or some mm -hmm. kind of technology that you were working on. Could you share a little bit about that and how that might sure. be able to help people with technology helping with this issue? Right. So we are transitioning as a society to more and more interactions that are electronically based. Absolutely. So the generations coming in that give me the most hope, they're bright, they understand what they want to accomplish, and they understand that they can't know everything. But fortunately, there are devices that can help us to do that. Mental health trauma is such a private issue. The app makes sense that people can address this issue in a safe space. They can do it at home. They could do it in their own room without others being around. And they can learn on the app. So the app is based with an algorithm that addresses the five issues, hypervigilance, avoidance, trust, control, hype, um, intimacy. intimacy. And the algorithm takes them as they complete an assessment to assignments that are specifically designed to address those issues. Wow. And then we give feedback because the thing that apps can do better than therapists can do is they never miss a reminder. <laughs> they never miss, a, that's a good thing for you to do. So we're actually building in aspects to the app right now that not only give them feedback on their homework, but it, it can give them immediate prompts throughout the day. And in the long term, what we would like to do is to have the app become smart enough about the person's life that it makes recommendations that are the recommendations that they would go to. So we have a learning library and the app takes notice of what people read and where people go in their learning processes. And the app gets smarter and smarter and smarter for the person as the app understands the way the person copes. Now, is this something that uh, is accessible to all, or could, do they have to come to the STAR program to access that? So the first group that we have worked with are first responders, buyer EMS. Um, the app is going out very shortly to all of them across the state of Ohio for wow. free. That's amazing. Because the state of Ohio has been such a wonderful partner in helping us to build programs and develop it. That, that's our thank you back to the state. Then we're moving on to different groups. And the idea of the app is to build it for healthcare professionals, for those in education and teaching, um, and then coming out with a program that is just a mental wellness app, which is the furthest iteration down the road, so that we can all get reminders to take care of ourselves. And then way down the road in the future, if you're familiar with things like um, diabetic sensors that measure blood sugar through the skin, the idea is to build the sensors that measure the cortisol, that measure the stress markers in the human being and gives them actual look at a chart and say, where am I at the moment? So brilliant. And then have that tell them what they need to do or what they could do to reduce their stress and trauma as reminders throughout the day to continue right. to move. I think mm -hmm. it's so brilliant. What you guys are doing is unbelievable and it's so inspiring and it defines innovation, honestly, in a whole new way. I think exactly what you're saying too, to have those 
breaks and those pauses throughout the day to really support yourself, support your central nervous system, support your mental health are so important. And we're understanding now through the process of COVID and quarantine that time is a luxury. Yes. And as people are starting to slow down, I did read that, you know, suicide rates in Japan have dropped by 20%, their largest drop in five years, right. because people finally stopped and slowed down. Yeah. And I'm really interested in that. And obviously, as we are as a firm with the concept of the respite room, which, you know, you're familiar with, of yes. course. Um, and we, we really are so proud of that, because in partnership with our research and innovation team, that room is designed for change. Yes. And it's rooted in evidence-based design and psychological studies designed to support the central nervous system. So how do you see resiliency being translated into the built environment, into different scenarios, you know, in healthcare, in first responders, you know, in fire stations and police stations, but then even maybe higher education and how would you see in shopping malls and things like that where mental health could start to have a place in physical space? So it's, it's really interesting as people begin to learn what works for them, they're becoming more and more interested in these spaces. The, to take the time to turn off. Because whether you're at work or at home, your electronic device is always with you. So what we as a society need to do is understand that we need to prompt ourselves to take breaks. It's, it's interesting in industry, when you think about people coming to a certain field, they come to that field because they have an intrinsic motivation to do so. Healthcare is the obvious one of that, that people really, really love biology. They understand health. And there's this intrinsic value of helping people to get well. Unfortunately, the viewpoints of how we incentivize the work that we do almost tramples that individual quest. And I think what we can do going forward is think about the workspace in ways that are different, that allow collaboration, that allow time for individuals to meditate, to breathe, to think through, to engage in aromatherapies, to just turn off. And it's so fascinating to me when people become better at taking care of their emotional wellness, their energy grows. Oh, amen. The productivity grows. Yes. And I'm not saying that we have to go backwards on the financial models, but I am suggesting that we add other pieces to it that builds on the individual's desires to move their professional life forward. So I'm curious with our respite rooms. So right now it's a solo individual room where people mm-hmm. can go in, they can take a 20 minute break to kind of decrease their hyperarousal state and um, get back to being productive. Um, so, you know, Sam touched on this a little bit, but. Do you think in some of our other sectors that we serve, like healthcare or higher education, do you think a solo room makes sense? Or do you think like a, because we're trying to get away from like the quiet room where Mm -hmm. people go and still do work. And I love the idea of technology and tech-free spaces because I think we all need to be able to disengage from our technology just a little bit. So what do you think about uh, those other spaces for some like outside the workplace? So I, I love the idea of getting out of the office and getting individuals together in environments that are stimulating. So when you think about, you know, in Europe, in Italy, every little town has a piazza and in the center is a fountain. And I love the idea because of the running water. And when you think about the Ohio State campus, people kind of naturally flock to the oval. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when people do that, they do it, A, because we're social, but they also do it because those interactions make your mind more nimble. 
you start to see things in different ways. So as, as we start thinking about the workplace, how can we build in spaces that offer collegiality, that offer the opportunity to hypothesis test, to brainstorm, to bounce off of one another? Because when you start building that connectedness in the workplace in different ways than you have done so previously, you start to get a different kind of energy and to move in a more, I think, productive format of going forward. I completely agree with you. And I think workplace and reentry is a hot topic right now. And people are definitely starting to slowly reenter at a pace they feel comfortable, even work, but of course, even going to restaurants, even going mm-hmm. to shopping centers. Again, things are starting to slowly come back. And as people are reentering, for a lot of people, it's bringing up a lot of anxiety Yes, because they've been at home in their safe space inside of their comfort zone. And now all of a sudden, it's a lot more stimulation. It's a lot more exposure. It's a lot more to take in. Um, And I just read that people with severe anxiety gravitate towards reruns on TV. And I thought it was so interesting. And the study was saying it's because they are predictable and they know what's going to happen. And there's a lot of comfort in that. Right. Um, So what are the coping mechanisms and methods for comfort you would recommend for people to explore that are dealing with that reentry anxiety? So it's it's very interesting that you bring up the reruns thing. Um, But, you know, there are generational connections to music. There are generational connections to literature. And when you are feeling uncentered, it's important to get back to the pieces that link you with times in your life that you were feeling very good and being very productive. And you can do that most powerfully through music, through literature. Think about the holidays and all of the foods, the cookies at the holiday takes you back to that space and time that was maybe less tense, maybe less stressful. And these are ways that we can help center and balance ourselves because this is a very frightening time and everybody is responding to it differently. And it's very difficult for folks not to be hurt or frustrated or angry or frightened because they feel they're not reacting the same way as everyone else. And the thing that I would say to people today that's most important is, you know what, right now it's okay not to be okay. It's, it's okay not to feel comfortable and it's okay to have some anxiety and some fright about going out into public places. We're already a little hypervigilant, but now we have a, a pandemic, we have an economic issue, we have social injustice, which is bringing out so many powerful emotions. It takes every individual to take some time and recenter and reconnect with themselves. And I think we need to do this on a daily basis. Oh, I agree. It's now, it's more important now than ever, I think, for people to take care of themselves so that they can take care of others and we can yeah. stay grounded because it is such a strange time. But I, I really do believe with the breakdown comes the breakthrough. So yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful for in a lot of ways what that will mean. And I think something that a lot of people are trying to ask and figure out is with that idea of understanding, you know, where people are at different levels and different phases of anxiety and stress and trauma, how can businesses or leadership capitalize on this right now as they're trying to figure out how they're tapping into these new emergent emotions and and communicating properly? That is such an important question because where do you get the support? 
and you spend more hours at your work environment than many of us do with our families. And that's where the idea of employers building in peer support programs, because nobody really understands the stressors that you have better than the person sitting next to you in the workplace. And can we train individuals in the workplace to be there to be peer supporters, to be there to understand that we have challenges, that we're caring for our children, our parents, ourselves, we're trying to be productive, now we're teaching school at home, and all of these things are coming up. When organizations look at peer support, they gain the trust of the employees and they gain the flexibility to have people go out and address whatever the issues are and come back. And when they come back, they're more productive. And when they're more productive, they're happier. And when they're happier, the business goes better. So what we see with first responders is nobody understands that difficult run better than the person that was there with you. So we teach very basic principles of, you know, what are the signs, what are the symptoms, and how do you support somebody during that time, which then gives people permission to say to somebody else, are you okay? What a simple question. And not accepting fine for an answer. Because everybody says, how are you? And what do we automatically say? I'm fine. Right? No, you're not. No, I can tell you're not. You're stressed. You're, you're, you, what's, really, what's going on? And how can I help you? And the cool thing about that is when you help somebody else, your brain releases neurotransmitters that actually reward you. So it's kind of like the dopamine release when you have that ice cream bar or the chocolate (laughs) or whatever it is. So it's really cool that when you help somebody else, you actually get a little boost in your emotions too. Which I think is is really, you know, getting to the heart of what resiliency is, right? You're about building yourself back up, building others up so they can be better prepared for dealing with stress and trauma in the future. Yes. And um, I think I read uh, a book, uh, it's called Dying for a Paycheck, actually, that cites where um, your boss has a higher impact on your life than your uh, primary caregiver does usually. So I think especially being able to have those communications, having those talks with people and employees is, is especially important right now. Absolutely. Oh, and just life in general. I think to your point, you know, asking someone, how are you actually doing? Yeah. And being open to expand to whatever their answer is, is so honest and so raw. Mm-hmm. And that level of vulnerability, that's where life has meaning. And that's where you find true connection is really breaking underneath that surface and really finding you know, what, where someone is in a real way, and maybe you can support them, maybe they can support you. That's mm-hmm. why we're all in this together. Life's too hard to go through it alone. Yes. So what a cool thing that if in being honest and being vulnerable, you really can have such a true, authentic experience that drives human connection and value. Yeah. So I kind of, as we're coming to the close of our show, I want to turn a little bit towards the future. So mm-hmm. I'm a certified futurist, so I actually always Ooh. am looking for <laughs> signals and drivers of change of things that are happening. Um, and Sam had mentioned one that I think is a really interesting signal. Um, so she had said that, you know, suicide rates in Japan have mm-hmm. dropped by 20%. And so I'm curious in your mind, in what other ways can we think about uh, what we're experiencing with the coronavirus right now? What positive impacts could it have on mental health going forward? So I think, if there is a silver lining to this, the silver lining is has brought mental health to the forefront. Yes, mm-hmm. It's made us all understand that 
we have to take care of this mental wellness. It's, it's not mental illness. It's moving to mental wellness. You know, there's no such thing as good physical health without good mental health. And even if you are in a situation that's very difficult, the worst thing to do for this pandemic time really is to isolate people or to limit their movement. But it's exactly the thing you have to do to treat it. So then we have to start figuring out ways that we can evolve social media into more of a supportive platform than a opinion-based platform. And when we do that, and when we start thinking about what it is that makes people tick, what makes them happy, what makes them move forward, we can then move forward again as a society. The reality of it is, is that you are growing the most at the moment you feel the least confident. That's Hmm. amazing. There's a lot of growth going on right now. One of my favorite one-liners is, what challenges you will change you. Yes. And I think we're all in a really challenging time right now. And I'm so hopeful and confident that there will be change that comes from this and and some really beautiful stuff. And personally, I'm really proud that MA has prioritized mental health even prior to all this. We've really, really taken a stance to be proactive as opposed to reactive, even creating the respite room concept in the built environment to have a physical space for change. And so I'm curious, Ken, as I run your fan club secretly on the side, um, <laughs> what has been your proudest professional moment? And what do you hope to see in the coming weeks and months and years? You know, there there have been so many opportunities. Um, the moments that really stand out are the moments where you connect with people and you feel it working. And you see it working. And you see that growth that comes I I don't think there is a proudest moment, but there are a series of steps that when people begin to prioritize their mental wellness, there's like a light bulb that goes off. And every time I see that personality and that affect brighten up, that's the perfect moment. So powerful. I love that. So, Ken, thank you again for being on our show today. Um, I know that I was truly inspired. And if there's anybody listening that uh, just needs to reach out, where would you recommend that they reach out to right now? You you know, to reach with the STAR program, 614-293-STAR is our number. We have mental health professionals available. Um, If you are looking for other sites, there are so many. I'll send you some. But the one that I want to think about is the suicide hotline. Um, with your device, you can type in suicide hotline and the, the 800 number pops up. Talk is the word. Um, you're never really alone. There are so many people out there willing to help. There are so many sites. If we can find a way to, to upload some of those sites onto your website. Yeah, absolutely. We'll absolutely. have them available there. We love it. Thank you very much. And thank you again for being here and for sharing your innovative insights. Uh, These are the innovations that can help our listeners find inspiration in their own lives to be thinking ahead and to create change. We hope to hear more about these innovations in the days, weeks, and months to come. If you'd like to learn more about us uh, at MA Architects, visit our website at ma-architects.com, where we have an entire COVID toolbox up and running that covers the wide variety of sectors we serve. And if you want to continue the conversation, feel free to email me directly at markb at ma-architects.com. Once again, I'm one of your hosts for Make It Innovative, Mark Bryan. And I'm Sam Dickerson. I hope you can find the change you want to be to allow innovation to thrive in the way you live. 
Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Ken Yeager, lead neuroscience researcher at The Ohio State University and director of the STAR program. Have a great day, everyone, and make it innovative.